This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, September the 8th, 2021. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, back in the saddle and glad to be here with all of you every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Many ways to listen live, including through our great affiliates. And if you miss a moment, you miss a lot. There's a free podcast for that. GuyBensonShow.com. On today's program, here's who we've got in the hopper. Mark Thiessen will join me later this hour on Afghanistan. A lot to get to on that front today. Wait till you hear some of this audio from the Secretary of State. Dr. Manny Alvarez will also be here. Back to school questions for him involving COVID. Some interesting developments about booster shots, some chaos and disarray within the Biden administration. What exactly is the proper guidance on COVID booster shots? We'll ask Dr. Manny. Martha McCallum, host of the story, she's on the air on Fox News right now, but she will join us in the next hour. And in our final hour, Charlie Hurt on all things politics, including the recall out in California. I just got back from California last night. I have a few thoughts on the recall. We'll get to that later. Plus, a tightening gubernatorial race in Virginia. That and more with Charlie Hurt. As we begin today, let's bring you a Fox News alert and some stats Coronavirus cases cumulatively in the United States over the course of the pandemic, 40.3 million, with the true number, as we've discussed many times, significantly higher. In fact, I saw a study that estimated in the mid to high 80s percentage-wise, let's say 85-ish percent of Americans have some form of immunity now to COVID, whether through vaccines or through natural immunity. That's a lot of people, but we know about breakthrough cases The Delta strain, it's complicated. The death toll in this country from COVID is now 650,998. The Dow is down 56 points at this hour to 35,042. Closing bell is in 52 minutes. Well, while I was away and I was gone on Friday, we had Labor Day off and I was gone yesterday as well. There was this developing situation in Afghanistan. We all remember that the president and his team promised all Americans that we would get anyone who wanted to be out of Afghanistan out before we pulled our troops out. He affirmed that commitment with George Stephanopoulos in an ABC News interview, and then he failed to follow through on that promise. He broke it. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of Americans stranded in Afghanistan with apologies to Jen Psaki for using the accurate word to describe what happened. Hundreds or thousands of Americans 
citizens and legal permanent residents and green card holders stranded in Afghanistan. And we had our final boots on the ground take off a full day early, as a matter of fact. So what does that mean for the stranded Americans? What does it mean for the abandoned tens of thousands of U.S. allies, interpreters and people like that, who risked their lives for us and to whom we made very deadly serious promises? I think the answer to that question has been very unclear. There was one story that we heard about of four Americans getting out of Afghanistan since the pre-deadline pullout of all U.S. troops, so August 30th, until today, September 8th. To our knowledge, based on what I have read and seen, we've gotten four Americans out, and that was a private effort that the State Department tried to take credit for, and the people who are responsible for that exfiltration, the people who actually made it happen, immediately went to the press and said, oh, absolutely not. The Biden administration cannot steal credit for this. We did this. They deserve little to no credit at all. And I think it's very on brand for this administration to have failed so miserably, to have lied to so many people, to have presided over this fiasco with so much incompetence and callousness, and then when there's little slivers of good news, thanks to other people's efforts doing the job that the Biden administration wouldn't do or couldn't do, delaying evacuations until the 11th hour, being dead wrong on so many predictions, misleading people, the list goes on, when the slivers of sunshine pop through the clouds... The political Biden administration tries to go and bask in the sun saying, look at what we have done. And I'm glad that there are people calling them out and saying, no, we're not going to let you get away with that. And FoxNews.com has several stories about this. But that's four people that have gotten out, to our knowledge. And the administration has been pretty slippery and cagey in response to questions on this. Maybe that there, you know, there are other efforts underway. We know that there are private efforts. Maybe there's some covert stuff happening with the CIA. Who knows? But these you know, nonstop efforts that they assure us that they have undertaken, right? Just because we're gone doesn't mean that the mission of keeping the promise to get Americans and allies out, that there is no expiration date on that. Well, the clock has been ticking in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, and at best, a tiny trickle of Americans, those hundreds and thousands of Americans who are left behind, we know of four who have gotten out. And then there's the developing scenario and situation. You might call it a hostage situation at an airstrip in Afghanistan, called Mazar-e-Sharif. I'm not sure how carefully you followed this over the long weekend. But there are airplanes apparently sitting on the tarmac, ready, willing, and able with the crews to fly hundreds, if not more. I don't know the total number. Let's say hundreds of people out of Afghanistan. That number includes some of our Afghan allies, Special immigrant visa holders, the SIVs, who we just totally abandoned by 
the, by the tens of thousands. Some of them apparently have gotten to this airstrip. It also, based on various reports, the number includes up to 143 Americans, be it citizens or legal permanent residents. But we have been able to get those planes off the ground. Why is that? We are now in day eight of this standoff. Remember, the Biden administration, after leaving Afghanistan and violating their sacred promise to get our people out and our allies out, they said, we will continue tirelessly round the clock to work to make sure that people can get out. And we expect that the Taliban, based on all these assurances and all the leverage that we have, we expect the Taliban will allow that to happen, and they have pledged that they will allow that to happen. And yet for more than a week, those planes at that airstrip have been sitting there. And the Taliban has been blocking people from getting into the airport or getting onto those planes, including Americans. And I know that the administration is very eager to call this anything but a hostage situation. And I don't know if you would call it a traditional hostage situation because apparently these people are free to leave the airport and, you know, go back into other parts of Afghanistan. But the goal is for them to leave, right? The point of these airplanes is to get these people out, our people out. They've been unable to do so for one day, then a second day, then a third day, then a fourth day, then a fifth day, then a sixth day, yesterday, a seventh day. Why? Why was this happening? Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, was asked about it, and he was very careful about the way that he talked about it. He, of course, did not want to use the H word, hostages, although... What would you call them? If there are 143 Americans who want to get out and can get out by plane, but the Taliban is saying, no, you can't do that yet, for whatever reason, and I have a few thoughts on that, a few guesses, right, informed hypotheses, Taliban is cash-strapped. Maybe they want money. International recognition, uh, uh, you know, from from. For example, the government of the United States, some of our allies, if they could convince or blackmail, coerce our government into recognizing their government, that could also loosen the purse strings and allow them to get some capital flowing into their regime. They also might just want to be considered internationally recognized. They might be okay with letting some of the Americans go, but they might want to capture, detain, and execute the collaborators who are among this group. There are a number of different reasons why the Taliban might be denying these flights clearance to take off. It could also just be sending a very clear signal. We are in charge. You are not in charge. And whatever happens at this particular airstrip and in this particular confrontation, again in day eight, Mazar-e-Sharif, The Taliban could be saying, in the future, if there are people that you want to get out, it's not going to just happen the way you want it to. We're calling the shots. You're not America. And they have that ability and that power because of the 
disastrous and shambolic and shameful way in which the administration, the Biden administration, failed to execute or plan this, even with a modicum, a drop of competence. And so, however this one ends up getting resolved, we don't know what's going to happen next time. Is there going to be a price to pay every single time? It would seem as though the Taliban might be setting that up. Now, I mentioned today is day eight of this quasi-hostage crisis at this airstrip in Afghanistan. On day seven, Secretary Blinken was asked about it. As I mentioned, he was extremely cautious in the way that he phrased things. But he basically denied any knowledge of it and kind of pretended like it wasn't really happening. Listen to cut one. As we understand it, there are groups of people who are grouped together, some of whom have the appropriate travel documents, an American passport, um, uh, a, a green card, a visa, and others do not. And it's my understanding that the Taliban has not uh, denied uh, exit to anyone holding a valid document, but they have said that those without valid documents at this point can't leave. So that is the spin from the Taliban that's being aped by the U.S. Secretary of State. Now, let's just say, hey, there's all these people. They've got their passports. They've got their green cards. Some of them have it. Some of them don't. Well, why don't you get the people who have the identification onto the first plane and let that one take off? But that has not happened. Why? The Taliban has their version of why. You know, all of a sudden, oh, they're, they're real sticklers for documentation, the Taliban. Does anyone believe that? And Blinken reiterated the assurances. They keep saying, oh, you know, they have told us our expectation. Remember, we have so much leverage. They have told us, they have assured us that they will allow Americans like this to depart. This was just yesterday, Blinken, in cut three. Because all of these people are grouped together, um, that's meant uh, that uh, flights have not been, uh, been allowed to go. We've been assured again that all American citizens and Afghan citizens with valid travel documents will be allowed to leave. And again, we intend to hold the Taliban to that. How? Hold them to that how? Where is this leverage of which you speak? They are clearly in control because we put them in control. And we did it on a hasty timeline that brought us to this point where we have Americans and allies stuck there at the mercy of the Taliban. And even on day seven of what's happening, just this very flat delivery from Blinken, our understanding is they're not blocking anyone from leaving. There's just some you know, logistical questions about the documentation. Well, today, just minutes ago, day eight, Blinken finally got around. I mean, it's amazing this guy still has a job. Blinken finally got around to basically conceding what the reality has been now for more than a week. We just heard the soundbites from yesterday. Less than 24 hours later, or roughly 24 hours later, in cut 24, here's the admission from the very same U.S. official. As of now, the Taliban are not permitting the charter flights to depart. They claim that some of the passengers do not have the required documentation. While there are limits what we can do without personnel on the ground, without an airport, with normal security and procedures in place, 
We are working to do everything in our power to support those flights and to get them off the ground. So they're conceding, okay, this is happening. Quote, the Taliban are not permitting the charter flights to depart. That is the bottom line. So now what? Now what? What leverage do we bring to bear here? There's a Fox News report that, among other problems here, the State Department, our own State Department, from Team Biden, they are not clearing flights for takeoff out of Afghanistan. Because they say, well, we don't know who's getting onto the planes, we don't have personnel on the ground, so we can't really vet them. Well, we don't have people on the ground for vetting because we pulled out all of our people. Right? It becomes this circular argument with these Americans stuck and stranded in purgatory in a terrorist state. We are just getting started here. Much more to come, including Mark Thiessen's take on all of this. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Another thought on all of this before we get to Mark Thiessen in the next segment on Afghanistan. Our supposed peace partners of all these grand assurances that we keep talking about, by we I mean the Biden administration, the U.S. government. What kind of government are they forming that they want to have potentially recognized? The type of government that we might be funding. We've already given them, of course, a huge amount of weapons indirectly with our precipitous withdrawal. They have a huge arsenal of American equipment. But moving forward, as they form a terrorist government in Afghanistan, there is a top terrorist from the Haqqani network, Al-Qaeda linked. He was in charge, this top terrorist, was in charge of security in Kabul during the final days of the U.S. withdrawal, which is just so insanely backwards. He has now been tapped to be interior minister in the Taliban government. This is a man who had a $5 million U.S. bounty on his head. Now he's in the cabinet, if you will. It also appears that four out of the five Gitmo detainees who were freed by the Obama administration in in exchange for Bo Bergdahl, the U.S. deserter, remember that swap? Four of those five high-ranking terrorists... Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. (laughs) 
His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Who were in Gitmo, in U.S. custody, are now also in senior positions in the new Taliban so-called government. Our peace partners, how much do we want to rely on those assurances? Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Thanks for being here. I'm Guy Benson. We welcome back to the show now, Mark Thiessen. Washington Post columnist, Fox News contributor, and former presidential speechwriter. Mark, good to have you back here. Good to be back with you. Well, I want to just play for you a couple of sound bites here and get your reaction. We opened the show talking about Afghanistan and this situation that has developed now. We're in day eight of what the administration, for obvious reasons, does not want to call a hostage situation. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people at an airstrip who want to get out. There are airplanes waiting to take them out. This number includes reportedly up to 143 Americans. And the Taliban, for eight days, will not let any of these planes take off. For the last few days, the administration has sort of played dumb. We don't really know what's happening. We have assurances. Taliban is going to let people with proper documentation out. We're monitoring this, etc. Earlier this afternoon, the Secretary of State changed his tune a little bit and finally admitted what's obvious. The Taliban isn't allowing clearance for takeoff. Here's what he said. This is Blinken today, cut 24. As of now, the Taliban are not permitting the charter flights to depart. They claim that some of the passengers do not have the required documentation. While there are limits to what we can do without personnel on the ground, without an airport, with normal security and procedures in place, We are working to do everything in our power to support those flights and to get them off the ground. Yeah, I don't really know what that means because whatever's within their power is obviously not good enough, has not been good enough for eight days. Taliban holding these people effectively hostage for reasons and goals that are not clear. I speculated as to a few of them potentially. But there's another wrinkle to this, Mark, and this is a Fox News exclusive that broke earlier Our colleague Benjamin Hall said that there's also American bureaucracy getting in the way. In addition to the Taliban saying no, there's a bureaucratic red tape holdup as well on our end. Listen to cut two. For days now, we have been reporting on these planes sitting on the runway in Mazar-e-Sharif in the north of Afghanistan with Americans waiting to bring them home but unable to leave. Well, now, leaked documents obtained exclusively by Fox News show that the State Department has refused to give them approval to land anywhere. In an email to retired Marine Eric Montalvo, who chartered these planes, the State Department says no charters are allowed to land at any DOD base, and most, if not all, countries in the Middle Eastern region, with the exception of perhaps Saudi Arabia will allow charters to land. You need to find another destination country, and it can't be the U.S. either. Okay, Mark. So a few things to unpack there. Blinken's statement saying, as of now, the Taliban won't let these people leave. And then the Fox News reporting, based on emails that have been obtained by Fox, 
showing that the State Department is saying chartered flights aren't approved by our government to land anywhere, even if they were able to take off. And I guess the rationale is that they're worried about vetting people and they don't have any personnel on the ground to figure out who's actually getting onto the planes. Of course, they don't have people on the ground because we pulled everyone out before the evacuation was complete and we didn't start the evacuation months ago like we should have. This just seems like a, sort of a, a purgatory for these people who are stuck. And I keep getting astonished by the absolute impotence and incompetence and seemingly callousness and lack of urgency from the Biden administration on all of this stuff. It's stunning. I mean, I, every day I think it can't get worse and then it does. Uh, you know, the, the I don't know what's worse, that the Taliban is holding them hostage or not letting the planes take off, or that the U.S. government is not letting the planes take off and come to U.S. bases. I mean, it seems pretty simple to me that if you if you can confirm that there are some Americans on those flights, you let the flights land, and then you secure the plane, and you vet the people, right? You know, what would we have done if we were, if this is a plane in, in, in if we were at Kabul airport? We would have vetted the people at, at what was effectively a military base. That we had After the a fact. US military base with with lots of Americans around and all the rest of it. We were doing this up until uh, up until a couple of weeks ago. And, and like, what's the difference between doing that in Kabul and doing it in Doha? I just don't understand. The, I just don't understand the and and the idea. You know, well, we don't. It's hard to do it because we don't have personnel on the ground. Well, why the hell don't you have personnel on the ground? Because the president of the United States left these people behind. You know, that that's not an excuse. Because you, cre- you created that situation. That's not just a circumstance you fell into. Right. The president of the United States told us that he would not, that he would extend the deadline and America would not pull out until we got all Americans out. And then they said that, well, they, we, got every, we, we got everyone who we think wanted to get out, but now we know there are Americans who want to get out. They, first they said it was 100, you know, and now we apparently there's 143 on the tarmac in Mazar. I'm sure there are more in the country, so I don't even know how many there are. And they left. He intentionally left them behind. He ordered the last plane to leave, knowing he was leaving Americans behind enemy lines. And, and then the and then the lack of pers- then the lack of boots on the ground, the lack of personnel on the ground, is now being cited by the State Department as a reason in emails. It's not like this is some report where Fox has the actual emails. And it seems like Blinken has basically confirmed this as well, saying, "Well, you know, it's it's we a challenge because yeah, we don't we have a paperwork we problem. Paperwork. We don't have people on the ground. I don't understand, Mark, why we can't get the people with correct paperwork onto a plane and let that plane take off, or just get people onto these planes, fly them somewhere. I'm sure we can convince some government to let those planes land, and then get State Department personnel who are no longer on the ground." in Kabul because of the order of the President of the United States and the violation of that promise, get them to vet people in a third country and at least get them the hell out of Afghanistan where the Taliban is in charge. I, I don't understand. It, it's a, from Mazar, it's a 15-minute flight to Uzbekistan. I mean, right over the border. <laughs> country from which we, we had a military base and we're conducting military operations throughout the, the global war on terror. I mean... 
send them to Uzbekistan, fly them literally across the border and vet them there. And then if they if people don't make it, take, walk, march them back to the border and send them back if they're people who we don't want to let in. I, it, it's just the lack of will, the lack of urgency. And then here's the worst part is that Blinken said, well, you know, these veterans groups, they're complicating matters for us. I'm <laughs> sorry. They're the only ones who are doing a damn thing to get these people out. You abandoned them and you turned it over. You pulled out our active duty troops and left it to American veterans, civilians who've taken off the uniform and are and are of their own volition with private money conducting exfiltration operations to get the people you left behind enemy lines out. And you're saying they're complicating things, right? You're whining. Yeah, you're whining about their efforts that seem to be the only real efforts afoot to do any of this, to try to keep the American promise to our own people and our allies. They're whining that some Americans have taken it upon themselves to actually follow through. And then when they have followed through, there was one example that I mentioned earlier in the show. The State Department, which had virtually nothing to do with that success, getting uh, a family out, the State Department tried to swoop in and claim credit for that. It's amazing. It is amazing. I mean, look, this is the worst debacle. I've I've been in Washington since I arrived here in 1990, okay? And this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my entire career in Washington, the worst performance by administration of any kind on any subject. And it's just just beyond me. I'll tell you something, Guy. I, I wrote a column in the Washington Post today. Joe Biden has no business showing up to ground zero on Saturday. The, the, this man who not surrendered to our enemies who attacked us on 9-11 and not only did that, but did it dishonorably by leaving Americans behind enemy lines knowingly, lied to the American people about what was going on on the ground, exposed our troops on the ground to security run by the Taliban and the Haqqani network, and then scheduled the withdrawal for September 11th because not because of military considerations, because he that required us to do it during the summer fighting season, but because he wanted to go to ground zero and use it as a political prop to say he ended the war 20 years after it was it was started in this place. And instead it backfired on him and it's let and, it, and it's he's turned a day of, of mourning and remembrance into a day of victory for our enemies. And it's just absolutely the most shameful thing. That man has no business in Shanksville. He has no business at Ground Zero. He has no business at the Pentagon. He has disgraced our country, and his presence will be a sacrilege. Wow. I mean, it's hard not to feel extremely passionate about this, given what has happened and what is happening. Right? I think there's a certain element of the media now sort of looking at the polling and how has this played out for Biden politically and what does this mean moving forward? And it's sort of like an after action political analysis. There are tens of thousands of U.S. allies and also hundreds, if not thousands of Americans actively still stuck in Afghanistan. This is not over by any stretch. And I don't know, Mark. Some people are referring to this situation that is currently underway at the airstrip as either a full-blown or kind of low-level hostage crisis at this stage. And I wonder what you make of that characterization. 
Well, you know what? It's either a hostage crisis or it's an abandonment. Because either either the Taliban are holding them hostage and not letting them go, or the Americans are not accepting them. Because those, those are the only two options. Either it's the Taliban or it's us. Who is it? Because otherwise the planes could take off and, they'd be, and we'd be done with this. Somebody is stopping the planes from going. So if it's the Taliban, yes, it's a hostage crisis. If it's the administration, then it is the United States government abandoning American citizens trapped behind enemy lines. Well, it seems like it's both. Part. No, it seems like it's both, it, it actually. It may be both. <laughs> Which, I shouldn't laugh. I, I really shouldn't laugh because it's just unfathomable. It's unfathomable that it is both. You gotta laugh because it's just like it's so absurd. The 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 cavalcade of just one catastrophe after another. It's like if you you literally wake up in the morning and you think it can't get worse, and then they do something and make it worse. It's it's just it's stunning, stunning competence and duty and this man you know they, they and, and by the way also it's not just americans like he forced our nato allies to leave their nationals behind because they couldn't stay once we were gone france right, once the Germany airport was stay behind but when, when america's not there anymore so he not only forced and not only forced he had a dereliction of his duty as commander-in-chief he forced our allies to have a dereliction of duty towards their nationals Mark, I want to play another soundbite for you. It's also from the Secretary of State, sort of this hapless, bumbling Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. So one of the storylines that's also picking up steam in Afghanistan is this new interim government, if you want to call it that, where you have the head of the Haqqani Network, who had a $5 million U.S. bounty on his head, with American blood all over his hands. He was in charge of security in Kabul in the final days of the chaos before we got out and now he's interior minister or some nonsense like that as part of this new interim government from the taliban we also have reports that it appears that four out of the five gitmo detainees high level hardened jihadists that we traded under barack obama for a deserter named bo bergdahl four of those terrorists are now in senior positions in this new government and this is the government on whose word and based on whose assurances apparently the state department is putting a lot of stock and when those assurances are not being fulfilled it's just been days of hemming and hawing and yammering and we're not really sure what's going on when the secretary commented secretary of state commented on this new developing government with the taliban or among the Taliban, here's how he chose to frame it in Cut 25. With regard to the composition of this uh, government or, or, or interim government, um, I noted uh, the fact that it certainly does not meet the test of inclusivity, um, and it includes uh, people who um, have uh, very challenging track records. Mark, it's not inclusive. We don't have an inclusive Taliban terrorist government here. And apparently one of the specifics that we're upset about is that there are no women in the government. It's sort of like, what were you possibly expecting? Do you know anything? Do you know literally anything about these people and how they operate? And then as for having multiple confirmed hardcore terrorists in the new Taliban government, the Secretary of State says he is aware that there are some individuals with, quote, uh, challenging track records, Mark. 
Um, you know, the level of stupid involved here is is breathtaking. You know, it's like they're looking for moderate Nazis, and that's what these people are. They're the modern equivalent of the Nazis. They're they're bloodthirsty, murderous followers of a murderous ideology uh, that believes that America is evil and wants to destroy us and is against all the tenets of civilization that we hold dear. And I'll tell you something. I, I want to talk about Tony Blinken for a second, because, you know, I, re I remember watching his confirmation hearings, and he told this very moving story about his stepfather, who was a Holocaust survivor and escaped from a Nazi death march through Germany and ran into the forest and waited until he saw an American tank. And when he saw the American tank, he came out of the forest and fell to his knees and said the only words he knew in English, God bless America. And the American soldiers took him into the tank and rescued him. And Tony Blinken said, that's who we are. Well, Tony Blinken has presided over doing the exact opposite. Because you know what? At, on the orders of his boss, there were Afghan allies of the United States who fell to their knees watching the last American plane leave Afghanistan and leave them behind. They're American citizens left behind. You know, for, this guy is not only betraying his, uh, they've not only betrayed these people, they've not only betrayed our country, they've not only betrayed our allies, he's betrayed the legacy of his own family. Yeah, and the people trying to actually fulfill the promise, he says, are making things too complicated. It's, it is pretty sick. Mark Thiessen, we got to leave it there for now. Washington Post columnist, Fox News contributor, Mark Thiessen, former chief spy, uh, Chief Speechwriter for President George W. Bush. Here on The Guy Benson Show, Mark, thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. A fresh take on the biggest stories of the day. It's Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. But at the moment, actually, I'm still focused on trying to get some of those brave Afghans out. The Americans, all of whom wanted to come out, have come out, praise God. But there are a lot of Afghans who risked their lives for our soldiers and others. Many got out, some didn't. And I'm still working on trying to get some of them out. Back on The Guy Benson Show, that's the voice of Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority Leader, Democrat of New York. He was asked on the street about people stranded and left behind in Afghanistan. And he's talking about trying to get some of those Afghan allies out. Now, the president and the United States of America promised to get them all out. And a process that had been orderly and thought through and even remotely competent would have gotten so many more of them out much, much sooner. Yet they tell us every contingency was planned for. They couldn't have done it any better. That's obviously an insulting lie. But notice Schumer there said all the Americans who wanted to get out did get out, praise God. Actually, no. There are a lot of Americans still stuck in Afghanistan, and apparently the Senate Majority Leader doesn't know that. Abandoned by the president and forgotten about by a key congressional leader. Awful. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. 
a new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. It's Wednesday here. Thank you for listening every day, Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. Fox News alert as we begin. The Dow closes down today, 69 points, ending at 35,030. With us now is Dr. Manny Alvarez, Fox News contributor and senior health analyst. And, Doctor, it's great to have you here again. Hi, Guy. How are you? I'm doing well. I have to confess that I am a bit confused, and I'm hoping that you will be able to help me with this confusion (laughs) about booster shots. So we had been talking about booster shots on the air here. We'd seen some of the data out of Israel and how the Biden administration was talking about booster shots or a third shot for elderly people and and vulnerable people, and that was going to start ramping up. And then there were reports of some FDA scientists resigning in protest because I guess this decision about universal booster shots for everyone had been announced or made without their input or without their sign-off. So a few people resigned because of this. And then the story broke a day or two later that public health officials at the FDA and the CDC are now encouraging the administration to maybe back off on the universal recommendation for everyone who's been fully vaccinated to get a booster shot and saying, well, let's let's maybe wait and see. But the horse was out of the barn at that point. It had already been announced. In fact, Dr. Fauci, 24 hours prior to this report that, you know, maybe not so fast, Fauci was out on national TV saying that he wouldn't be surprised if three doses was really all along the full dosage that was going to be required. I have no idea what the hell the government actually wants me to do or average people to do, people who are vaccinated. Did they get out over their skis and announce something before they had the data? What happened here? I think so. I I think that you're seeing exactly uh, a lot of uh, leakage of uh, from the scientific community at the you know at the federal level, uh, and I think that this is uh, you know I, I always say when politicians want to play doctors, this is exactly what you get, and this is exactly what has happened. The the data on on booster shots is still a little complicated. There is no doubt whatsoever that if you have an immune-compromised patient or you have a very old patient which uh, took the shots a long time ago, and we know the natural history of any vaccine, that that the protection wanes off over time. So it makes perfectly sense. And if you look at in detail on the Israeli data, that's really what they were focusing on. At no time does the data reflect that if you're in your 50s and you got two shots uh, and you took it in March or April or May, whatever the case may be, that you are eligible or you should even consider a booster shot at this point in time because the science is just not there. Um, you know, so but like that's what they announced. Else, they, they, they started announcing that ev- everyone was going to need them. Well, everybody wants to be a doctor. Every politician wants to be a doctor. Every talking head wants to be a doctor, and that's exactly what we have today. There's no respect for science, and there's no respect for the scientific community, and everybody spins it 24-7, and that's exactly what you get. So, look, the, the message is, is, is straightforward as far as I'm concerned. If you have immunocompromise, if you're a cancer survivor, if you are an organ uh, recipient where you're taking immunosuppressive drugs, 
if you're very old and you have underlying medical conditions, absolutely have a conversation with your physician and maybe a booster shot would just keep those immune cells uh, active and whatever variant comes, whether it's the Mu or, or, or the Delta or anything else, and you live in a high-risk area, absolutely consider the booster shots. But for the rest of the nation, I think that, that you know, this is um, th- 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 these are the reasons that we get into these, you know, into this in, into these valleys of vaccination rates, and you have the anger from the populace that says the message is not clear, and rightfully so. So you know, it, 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 you know, it, it, you know, it, it, it's a mess beyond comprehension all over again. You know, I'm going to read to you quickly from a post. This was last week. Alapundit writing at Hot Air. Uh, And he's referring to these two key FDA vaccine regulators who've apparently resigned in protest over the administration's decision to push boosters before the agency felt comfortable doing so. He writes, Trump was lambasted during his presidency for politicizing science, creating an opening for Biden to pledge on the campaign trail that the science would always determine the policy in his administration. Less than eight months removed from Inauguration Day, he's now had two scientists quit because he neglected to keep that pledge. And that goes to your point about politicizing science. Doctor, I also... I also want to ask about school because it's back to school week for a lot of kids in the Northeast. Yeah, Many other kids have been have been back in, in classrooms now for weeks in the South and elsewhere. What are we learning about the school year so far? Do we have any good data on this? Because my understanding from the CDC, and again, it's hard to keep track of their pronouncements, but it seems like the data has shown that Delta is much more contagious, so a lot more kids are getting it. But Delta has not been more dangerous health-wise in terms of bad outcomes for children. Is that accurate based on what we know? That is very accurate and, and, and completely correct. You know, when we talk about statistics, remember, if you look at the statistics, they said children now represent 26.8% of the weekly COVID cases. That means that a kid tested positive. It doesn't mean that the kid is sick. Okay, and so we know that COVID, uh, unless the child has other, you know, severe underlying medical conditions or is significantly overweight, you name it, uh, yes, they could, they could have detrimental effects, and and that happens, no doubt about it. But the infectious rate does not translate into hospitalization rates. That, that, that there's a big difference there. So. However, I would argue that, uh, you know, I'm all for masking children in school right now because we still have a disconnect between cities, school system, teachers, uh, workers in school of whether or not they have been vaccinated. I haven't seen a national move to say, okay, you know what, we'll, we'll mask all the kids, but make sure that everybody in this school system that is employed by the state or the city or whatever the case may be, uh, shows a vaccination card fully executed. I haven't seen that yet. So, you know, one of the biggest issues with, with children going back to school, I don't mind the, the mask. I do mind the atmosphere that they're going to get that they're going to enter in. If we continue to have this atmosphere of fear, of doubt, of confusion, you can only imagine what that's going to do to the psychic of these children. And that's what worries me more than anything else. So we better get our act together. Uh, You know, I'm all for protecting the children. Uh, My daughter just went back to her last year of college. 
She is fully vaccinated, but her school is making her take a COVID test every two weeks, mandatory. I said, no problem. It will happen. But uh, but it, it is the atmosphere that is created by some of these protocols and the protocols children don't really understand why, you know, why, why are these rules in place and, you know, things like this. So we better get our act together in school systems and, okay, protect the children, make them wear masks, make them have separation six feet apart, put the plastic, you know, the, the whatever plastic protection you want around their desk, that's all well and good. But make sure that every employee of the school system is vaccinated. And if they don't want to be vaccinated and they want to force kids to be so restrictive, then there's something wrong with that. Yeah, and I think some of the mitigation techniques that might make people feel better, there's not great data to even back up their efficacy for preventing the spread among kids. And we see very different rules, for example, in Europe. But I think a lot of people are just trying to figure this thing out. And this brings me to my last question here, doctor. And I want to give you a little bit of runway uh, to handle it because I want to start asking all of our medical experts about this. The atmosphere that you refer to of fear and confusion and the constant changing of we're all going to need booster shots. Wait, maybe not. Hang on. Hold that thought. Kids have to wear masks in schools, but wait, they don't in the UK and they're fine. You got to get, you know, vaccinated. But even if you do, you still have all these restrictions on you. Well, what happens when the Delta wave comes to other parts of the country in the fall? Are we going to have, you know, targeted shutdowns and mask mandates indoors or even outdoors, even if you're vaccinated? It just sort of keeps feeling like it's going on and on and on. And I think a lot of Americans, A, are tired of this. They're they're tired of the pandemic. But, you know, the pandemic is what it is. Whether you're tired of it or not, it exists. But what's the end game? Because we can't – I feel like whatever we're doing now, whatever we've been doing for the last year and a half, that's not going to be sustainable, doctor, for very much longer, especially once we have a widely available vaccine and this is an endemic disease. I feel like the end game, there has to be some clear picture of what that looks like, but I feel like we don't have any common – concept of what that goal or that end game should look like as a society. Well, listen, until COVID, uh, you know, stops being handled as a political football and, and politicians and, you know, vested interests in whatever they want to do, uh, uh, let it go. Uh, and it becomes a, a normal disease endemic to the country uh, and to the planet, and it's handled by by the healthcare professionals no different than the flu is, because you know people tend to forget you know thousands of people die of the flu every year, right? Right. So uh, until it becomes until it becomes back into the norm of 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 the the dialogue. But right now, you know, it's being, you know, it's being spinned by politicians, by news uh, uh, people, by vested interest people. Um, and, you know, until that happens, we're going to be living with this nightmare. Um, and it's unfortunate because, you know, if you look at, you know, 70 percent of Americans have been vaccinated. Uh, right, know, that, that seems, uh, and Dr. Know, we're up on a break. I mean, that seems like a really relevant statistic. And yet, for those of us who are vaccinated... Our, our lives have only changed so much, and we seem to be all over the place about where we head collectively, and that's a conversation we're going we're to continue to have here. 
Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. An update on something that happened yesterday that I wanted to make sure that we brought to your attention because we've been following it on and off now for months. Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, signed into law the election reforms that caused Democrats in the state legislature, remember, to flee from Austin, Texas, to leave the jurisdiction to fly on chartered planes to Washington, D.C., maskless, where they had a super spreader event. They infected people in Nancy Pelosi's office in the White House. They sang songs outside the U.S. Capitol. They appeared all over the media, talking about how this was Jim Crow and voter suppression and all of their talking points. And they were usually pretty vague about why the bill was so bad, using hyperbole in place of specifics. Because the specifics did not align with the hyperbole. We recall that some of those legislators, while they were delinquent, actually went on vacation to Portugal. So, you know, they were uh, such heroes for democracy in their own minds, but they wouldn't show up and do their jobs. And that lasted for weeks, but as we told you all along, it was not sustainable. They did not have the ability to prevent the law from being passed eventually because the people of Texas have elected Republicans by pretty large margins to control the government in that state. So while they could deny quorum with their absence, they couldn't stay absent forever. And slowly but surely, they started to trickle back to Texas. They started to get very angry with each other, putting out statements and tweets and comments, sniping back and forth as their united front crumbled. The state Senate, in their absence, passed the bill. Then they had their quorum in the state house. They passed the bill. And yesterday, Governor Abbott signed it into law. And it is now implemented with force of law in the state of Texas. And Abbott tweeted this, quote, Election integrity is now law in Texas. This law, now bullet points, ensures every eligible voter gets to vote, adds more hours to vote, makes it harder for fraudulent votes to be cast, and makes ballot harvesting a third-degree felony. Bottom line, he says, it's easier to vote and harder to cheat. And I would say, overall, that is accurate. You might quibble with a few provisions. Some of the provisions that I objected to were actually changed and altered and improved. And just like we saw in Georgia... With that whole conflagration and the just huge amount of over-the-top rhetoric that flew around, we saw that play out in Texas as well, although more muted, right? We didn't see as much preening. We didn't see Major League Baseball announce a boycott of Texas. We didn't see a bunch of corporations out there genuflecting. We saw a little bit of that. I feel like the left shot their shot in Georgia. They failed. It passed. It's actually relatively popular despite all the lying and demagoguery. And now a similar law 
has been inked by the governor in the state of Texas. And the big runaway fleabagger stunt by Texas Democrats down there, as we knew it always would, has failed. And one more point I'll make on this. That last bullet point from Abbott's tweet celebrating the signing process, he said that the new measure makes ballot harvesting a third-degree felony. Ballot harvesting is illegal in most parts of the country. There was a fraudulent congressional election last cycle, 2018 cycle, I should say, in North Carolina that centered around illegal ballot harvesting, which is this extremely sketchy, dodgy practice where a third-party actor can go and gather a bunch of ballots, paper ballots, absentee ballots, and deliver them to be cast and to be counted, where the chain of custody becomes, I, I think, extremely questionable and highly suspicious. Texas has made it even more of a crime. In California, it is legal. It's how they operate their elections in California. Some operative can go around and collect a bunch of ballots and drop them off, and they all count. And what happens in between the ballots being mailed out and the ballots being counted is very much up for debate in some cases and unknowable. California Democrats think that that's a good way to run an election. Texas Republicans strongly disagree, as do I, and they make that abundantly clear in this new law, which, as I mentioned, was signed by Governor Abbott yesterday. And so this chapter of this controversy is now closed. I wonder how the Texas Democrats who fled to D.C. feel about their little adventures. Was it worth it, guys? When we come back, Martha McCallum joins me on The Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. GuyBensonShow.com. Halfway through the show on this Wednesday, halfway through the week. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. Joining us now is Martha McCallum, executive editor and anchor of The Story, every weekday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Also, the politics co-anchor here at Fox News. She's author of the best-selling book, Unknown Valor. You can also check out her podcast, The Untold Story with Martha McCallum at foxnewspodcast.com. Martha, good to have you back. Guy, good to be with you. I want to start with Dr. Anthony Fauci and some of these documents that have come out in the last day or two. And I am not a scientist. Let me put that out there. I'm not even close to an expert on this stuff. When I've seen some of the back-and-forth debates about gain-of-function research and who was funding what and where, I see some people saying... Fauci isn't telling the truth. I see Fauci under oath attacking, for example, Senator Rand Paul, saying you don't know what you're talking about. 
it looks like there's at least some more information and more evidence, documents, out recently that would suggest that at the very best, Fauci has been parsing some words. I would like to see him called back up for more testimony and perhaps have some doctors or scientists there if they can't cross-examine him to at least serve to give context, because I think what Fauci might be counting on is a lot of people like you and me, Martha, relatively bright people who try to keep up with the news. It's hard for us to really understand deep in the weeds, you know, debates over what counts as what sort of research and how money might get directed from one institution to another. But at the very least, my understanding seems to be, or at least the growing evidence seems to point in the direction that perhaps Dr. Fauci wasn't fully forthcoming about this, to put it kindly. I wonder how you're thinking about this, because it is complicated, but it strikes me as really, really important. Yeah. You you know, I mean, there are a couple of places in the world. North Carolina is one of them. Texas is one of them. And Wuhan, China is the other, where this kind of gain of function research has been done. And in the most benign interpretation, it's labs that are working with viruses that are that exist in nature and accelerating them, working with them in a lab to try to figure out, well, if, if we were confronted with something like this, how would we counteract it? How would we cure people if they were to get this? So that that's the benign definition of gain of function, to accelerate a virus, to have it spin off mutant versions, and then figure out a way to treat them. And that's my also very non-scientific, just based on what I have read on all of this over the past couple of years. So obviously, the mind goes to the other possibility that if that is the case, that this research exists, and we know it does, um, if you're a bad actor on the global stage, could you potentially unleash something like that? That would be the definition of a bioweapon, right? There's no hard evidence that that is what happened um, in in China, in Wuhan, China. However, the next level down from that is an accidental leak that perhaps this virus leaked from the from the Wuhan lab, and perhaps that is what started all of this. Now, early on, when you go back in this story, there was a lot of scrambling going on. The Eco Health Alliance that was run by Dr. Peter Daszak, close relationship with Dr. Fauci. There's you know pictures of the two of them. They had obviously worked together. Um, got nervous early on. Uh, Peter Daszak got worried that the that the kind of research that he was helping to fund through his Eco Health Alliance, some of that money came from Dr. Fauci's agency, government agency, that was going into this kind of research in a broad sense. And then so the money went from the U.S. to DASAC, then it went to several places, including the Wuhan lab. Some of that money got there. So the question is, could there be any intermingling of that money? So I just think one of the early signs that I look to, and it's just, you know, sort of, um, you know, it's just consequential, that DASAC rallied a bunch of very world-respected scientists to put something out almost immediately after COVID leaked and said, or COVID began to spread, I should say, um, and said, you know, can you all sign this letter um, in, you know, one of the, in the Lancet, one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world, saying that there's no way this was a, a lab leak. This was not something that came from China. This is a naturally occurring virus. And they all jumped on board. Now, 
months and months later, some of them have said, you know, I shouldn't have signed that letter so quickly. I didn't really take into consideration some of what could have happened. Well, and remember, remember at the time, Fauci had also knocked it down publicly, saying that seems very unlikely. He was significantly downplaying it. And Dazak sent him an email thanking him for doing that. And then that is correct. they've all come either 180 or close to it saying, oh, gosh, maybe this lab leak theory is viable after all. We don't have perfect clarity on it, but it seems like something that we were not allowed to even talk about for months is now widely accepted as a top, very viable theory for what happened. But one of the spinoffs, Martha, of this whole debate is did the U.S. government actually send money or fund this controversial, potentially dangerous research at the lab in Wuhan. And that has been adamantly denied up and down by Dr. Fauci. Adamantly denied. Right. up, It's just but, not you know, true. You don't know what you're talking about, Senator Paul. He got pretty irate, actually, under oath. There are others who have said, including Josh Rogan at The Washington Post, he said it really seems like Fauci is playing rhetorical games here to try to hide the football. And then there was this thread just yesterday from Dr. Richard Ebright, who is a chemist and a very well-respected scientist at Rutgers, who has been quoted throughout the pandemic on precisely these types of issues. And his final tweet about this new trove of documents that has been revealed in recent days is this, quote, the documents make it clear that assertions by the NIH director, Francis Collins, and the NIAID director, Anthony Fauci, that the NIH did not support gain-of-function research or potential pandemic pathogen enhancement at the Wuhan Virology Lab are untruthful. That's his conclusion. And, Mm -hmm. again, I don't know exactly who's telling the truth. It is really hard to follow the scientific jargon and follow the money. But at the very least, Martha, my point is I do not simply believe at face value the assertions of Dr. Anthony Fauci about this anymore. I don't think that he deserves that. Nor should anyone have to, you know, And, and I think you're right. I mean, we need to have a hearing where he's asked these questions given the new information that we have on it, you know, and, and I think that one of the things that happened, which I would want to ask more questions about, uh, during the Obama administration, there was a ban on gain-of-function research because people were nervous about something exactly like this happening. Um, and then they sort of changed the, the semantics, they changed the definition of what is acceptable and what is what we would call gain-of-function research. And I believe that there was some involvement on the part of of Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins in terms of what that definition would be like. So if you change the definition a little bit, you can continue to fund the kind of experiments that you want to continue to fund. And deny that you're doing it. Or support them based on your own definition of what that kind of function research actually is. So these are are things that we need to know. And I don't, you know, I, I would love to be able to ask Dr. Fauci about this. I did ask Dr. Collins about why we were all sort of waved off this lab theory so early on by Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins. And he, you know, sort of snickered at it and said, you know, oh, nobody, nobody was waved off. And this isn't what's important anymore. But that is, we all, we were. Clearly we were. There's statements on the record by both of them that, that they didn't believe that this was the avenue to go down. And, you know, I mean, look, there was even, 
there were bans by Twitter for people who suggested that this might have come from the lab in China. And look at the way President Trump was treated for calling it the Wuhan virus. So, right, and Senator um, Cotton, remember, fact-checked by everyone, oh, this dangerous conspiracy absolutely. theory, which turned out not to be such a dangerous conspiracy theory. And it no, bothers me. I remember that interview. That needed to be asked questions about. Yeah, no, I, re- I remember the interview. I remember Collins sort of dancing around stuff and sort of dismissing the premise, and he seemed almost sort of bemused that he even had to deal with some of the questions. But again, I'm just a simpleton on the radio and television, Martha. But to me, it is not too late, nor will it ever be too late, to ask relevant questions about the origins of a pandemic-causing virus that has killed millions of people around the world when that question is still very much open. That is, that's not sort of old news at all. It isn't. And what happened, you know, so we had this 90-day investigation that the Biden administration did when they started to open the door and say, well, maybe we should consider the possibility that perhaps this did, was a lab leak. Because as you point out, look at what's happened to the world and what's still happening to the world. Look at the impact on the economy. Look at the impact on working. Look at the impact on education. So this is something we do need to know. And we, we need to keep digging and digging and digging on it until we get some some real answers. This is extraordinarily important. But uh, my question is, what is since the 90-day report ended, which was inconclusive, what are they doing now? Is there is there an ongoing effort from the administration to to try to answer these questions? I, I'd love it. I'd love for that to be the case, and I hope that is the case. But I, I don't see it. Well, because it felt like the timeline was we were verboten to discuss the subject about the lab leak, and then all of a sudden it became so overwhelming, the evidence that it was at least somewhat credible that we couldn't avert our eyes anymore, even the people who wanted us to. And that unto itself became a scandal. People asking, why weren't we allowed to ask these questions? Why were we viciously attacking those who were floating this as a possibility, including the former director of the CDC, who said that he got death threats from scientists simply for saying what was right in front of his nose, When that became a bit of a political problem and people started asking questions about the previous and heretofore lack of questions, that's when the Biden team announced this 90-day review from U.S. intelligence, the result of which was basically a shrug emoji. And I Mm -hmm. guess we're just (laughs) kicking this can and kicking the can and kicking the can and hoping that people are going to stop really caring or lose interest. But to me... It has to be one of the top stories of our lifetimes, Martha. What happened here and how? Absolutely. And you know what else is a factor here? You know, if it turns out that it can be traced to the lab, and I don't know if it ever can because those early samples have all been destroyed. And, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously dealing with China is is going to be extraordinarily difficult. um, And they're not going to tell the truth about it. So, you know, anything that leads back to that is going to inevitably raise the question, well, maybe President Trump was right about this, okay? And that's a, that, that's a place that a lot of people, you know, just, just don't want to go. Don't want to go. Mm-hmm. I think that is probably an explanatory <laughs> factor. Of a lot of things. Yeah. Yep, which, which it shouldn't be, because that's pure politics. It has Absolutely nothing to do with not. science and or truth. And when someone is right about something, if you are right about something, it doesn't, you know, it should be, it should be completely outside of politics, especially when it's something that so deeply impacts every single American. Martha, last question for you. Totally different subject. Politico, from their West Wing playbook, has a report out today that a lot of staffers in the White House can barely bring themselves to watch President Biden when he's giving a press conference or answering questions from the press. A lot of them will turn their TVs on mute, turn it off altogether. 
there is, I guess, this real push to have him avoid questions as often as possible, which you know is not a surprise. We've all seen that, especially in recent weeks. And I just wonder, as a journalist, what you make of this when you have the leader of the free world and the president of the United States, apparently with staffers who are so aghast by his inability to answer questions well or to maybe dig himself into deeper holes if he does answer questions, that the strategy seems to be uh, trying to persuade him not to take questions as much as possible. Well, I think that's pretty, I think that's, I don't even think that's an opinion perspective. I think it's very clear that they limit the opportunity for him to answer questions. I mean, he has done some sit-down interviews. He did George Stephanopoulos uh, recently on Afghanistan, but every opportunity that he had with the open press, those were cut very short. They were like, you know, five, ten minutes, I think, maybe four or five questions, something. Right. In that if they happened at all, the right, if he didn't walk head, out the if door. Happened at all. In most cases, he walked out the door and said, no, I'm not going to answer questions about Afghanistan. So it's, it's empirical and clear to point out that he is, that they are limiting. And, and even at one point he said, I know I'm not supposed to take any questions. Or I know I'm not supposed to, they're, you know, I'm going to get in trouble. Or, yeah, he says it a lot. I'm supposed to answer questions from, right? Um, here's who they told me to, to receive questions from. So it's, I think that that story is not surprising at all. And, uh, you know, and the point of what he's going to say when he does go out there, I just think that it's a, again, I don't think this is a, a partisan perspective. I think when you watch President Biden, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or an independent, you get a little nervous. What's going to happen? What's he going to say? Is he going to get to the end of this sentence? I mean, that's an experience that I think you'll find across the board. So I, I think this political piece is very interesting. I don't think it's surprising. Yeah, and it's not a Politico story about Republican sources in D.C. suggesting or alleging this is what's happening. It's Democratic sources inside the Biden White House saying this is how we feel when it happens. So, I mean, you're on very solid ground with what you just said there, Martha, because Politico's quoting White House staffers confirming this is how it is on the inside right now. And it's something that, of course, uh, we watch with interest every time he speaks. Is he going to take questions? If and when he does, there's only a few of them, and he tends to get himself into pretty serious trouble when he does, talking about no al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, no problem with our allies or our credibility. Yes, we're going to keep boots on the ground until every American's out. That's just on Afghanistan. In question and answer sessions, he says things that then get discarded. And it becomes a political problem for the president and the team around him. Martha McCallum, we've got to leave it there, up on a break. She's the anchor of the story every weekday at 3 p.m., so she just got off the air. I would just say that's been the the mode since the campaign. Take care. Indeed it has. And with that, we will step aside on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. As you know, I was off last Friday and yesterday. A little anniversary trip out to wine country in California. Really great time. We will talk more about that tomorrow because producer Christine wants to get in on the action with some questions about it. So we'll keep our powder dry there. But I will mention this. On the trip, I watched some sports, including a very disappointing Northwestern game on Friday night. So cats need to turn it around. But I watched some college football and a little bit of baseball throughout the weekend here and there 
in between wine tastings or meals and that sort of thing. And I don't believe I saw a single commercial in favor of the recall. Right, This coming Tuesday is the recall election out in California for Governor Newsom. Every ad that I saw was anti-recall, pro-Newsom, anti-Republican. The Democrats and their allies are spending tens of millions of dollars out there to save Newsom. And one of the commercials I saw in particular, the political ad that I saw probably ten times it felt like, cast it as a choice between almost life and death. Now you can vote against the recall and Gavin Newsom remains governor and science remains on its throne or you get an anti-vax Trump Republican who might kill us all and a big X over the vaccine. The leading Republican is Larry Elder who is vaccinated, who has encouraged vaccination. He is against government mandates which is not the same thing as being anti-vax. And the Newsom campaign has been fact-checked on this, but they're running that ad anyway. They are trying to whip up support among their supporters. Bernie Sanders is in on the action. Elizabeth Warren was in town. The president, Joe Biden, is supposed to be there next week. Kamala Harris tweeting up a storm and involved. It's all hands on deck for the Democrats. The polling has moved in their direction. We'll see what Charlie Hurt has to say about it. Is there a shot at getting this guy recalled next Tuesday? Charlie Hurt on the other side of this break and our final hour on The Guy Benson Show. Straight ahead. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our final hour on this Wednesday. Our website, always the same, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free, GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is crisp and refreshing and delicious and popular and expanding. You can visit them online, TheLongDrink.com. 21 plus only, please, and always drink responsibly. That's TheLongDrink.com. You can see where it is sold near you, or you can order online, which is what we do. Joining us now is Charles Hurt, opinion editor at the Washington Times and a Fox News contributor. Charlie, great to have you back. Hey, Guy. How you doing, buddy? I am doing well. Let's start where we left off in the previous hour. I was talking about California. I was just out there for a couple days. And there was just an avalanche of TV ads against the recall in favor of Newsom, fear-mongering about what the Republicans could do to destroy California if they took over. And it seems like... In early to mid-August, the polling was actually quite concerning for the Democrats. A lot of the polls showed a dead heat on the threshold question of yes, no on the recall, with Larry Elder emerging as the Republican frontrunner and the overall frontrunner if Newsom were to get recalled. But in the last few weeks, 
the numbers have shifted pretty dramatically into the Democratic column, with Newsom now ahead 8, 9, 10, sometimes 12 points in some of the latest polls. Democrats have been spending a huge amount of money and sending a lot of their biggest names out there to make sure that their folks are energized and participating in this election. You know, I remember in 03 when there was a successful recall out in California, Governor Gray Davis, he got the boot, and of course Arnold Schwarzenegger became the governor of California. His approval rating around that time was in the 20s and low 30s, and he in fact did get recalled. Uh, That was also a less blue California at the time. You know, President Bush in 2004 only, quote-unquote, lost California by 10 points. Donald Trump lost it by almost 30 points in 2020. So, I mean, if you look at the data and you look at how much more Democratic the state has become and the approval rating for Newsom is far better than Gray Davis's ever was, you know, it seems like maybe they have righted the ship a bit out there. I just wonder if you have a sense whether or not this upset is still viable for people who are crossing their fingers and rooting for Gavin Newsom to lose his job. Yeah, well, you know, we always knew it would be a tremendous uphill battle for uh, for lots of reasons, uh, not the least of which is what you just mentioned about how um, how incredibly uh, blue the state has become. And of course, you know, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of reasons for that, not the least of which is the fact that you have a lot of um, uh, you know, after years and years of, of Republicans sort of uh, be, being met, meeting every election with nothing but frustration, it really does have an effect of, of sort of making a lot of people give up and just not even try to participate, which is not a good thing. And then you have the situation out there now where you have um, Democrats are outraising uh, or the, 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 the anti-recall effort uh, is outraising the recall effort by five to one and there are uh you know there are uh, baked in reasons for why it is easier for uh, gavin newsom to raise money than it is for uh larry elder and Alphys. and then of course just the idea of ever removing it, it, you know, p- politicians sort of create the whole situation so it's pretty much uh you have to use tannerite in order to get a uh t- to get dislodge an incumbent in any election especially in an election like this where it's sort of um, where you're talking about a recall as opposed to just a, a, a straight up election. Um, but I do think that, that, you know, we have seen some, uh, some, some, a level of desperation from Democrats uh, over the last couple of weeks that I think is, uh, you know, it, it, you know, maybe it does not mean that, that, uh, that, that Newsom ends up losing, but it has been a joy to watch uh, Democrats have to, uh, resort to referring to uh, Larry Elder as the black face of white supremacy, um, yeah. and I mean, making b- m- making true the the uh, the, the hilarious um, skit uh, about uh, about um, you know the, it, it's like it's like a Saturday Night Live skit. It's so ridiculous. Yeah, I mean to go that direction and to run the types of ads that I saw just bombarded day after day out in California that, you know, the anti-vax Republicans might kill you. It doesn't really reek of confidence, but (laughs) they are playing with a major home field advantage in California. And we'll see. It's going to come down to participation. They've been doing everything they can to scare their people into 
showing up and getting energized because the pro recall side is no question energized. They're just outnumbered overall in the state. And we'll know soon enough. It's a week from yesterday, that race out in California. In the meantime, Charlie, closer to home for you and for me, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, I saw a new poll out today. Now it's a Republican internal poll, so grain of salt. But it shows Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, running for governor in Virginia, now leading Terry McAuliffe by two points. Terry McAuliffe, the former DNC chairman, former election truther, former governor in Virginia. He had been ahead of Youngkin by, you know, one to six or seven points in recent weeks. But this Republican internal poll shows now a two-point lead for Youngkin. And a big driving factor behind it is Joe Biden really taking a beating in his popularity in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So, you know, on one hand, as I alluded to, it's a Republican internal poll, and sometimes you leak those things to boost morale and try to change the narrative. So, uh, you know, I'm always a little bit skeptical of that. However, the exact same pollster had McAuliffe ahead by six or seven points a month ago. So it's the same series there. And the erosion of support for Biden in Virginia within this poll, it echoes and aligns with what we are seeing in other polling data across the country in swing districts, battleground states. There's a Democratic pollster that has been sounding the alarm that Biden is really underwater now in a lot of these swing states. And Virginia might be pretty blue tinted these days, but not that blue tinted where Joe Biden could be tanking and there would be no effect on a statewide race. And I wonder what your read is now that we are, gosh, less than two months away from Election Day in Virginia. Is this race a straight up toss up? Because that's kind of the sense that I get. Yeah, I, you know, there's no doubt. In, 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 there's no doubt whatsoever that, that Joe Biden has taken it in shorts. Uh, in, and it has an effect in places like Virginia. There's also no doubt that people are sort of tired of you know, the idea of a retread like Terry McAuliffe is not all that appetizing, I think, to a lot of voters, even sort of more independent-minded voters. And Glenn Youngkin has capitalized on that, and, and, and there's definitely something afoot in Virginia um, lining up behind Glenn Youngkin. And I think, Guy, you and I have talked about this before about Virginia um, you know, there had, because of that sort of blue trending nature of the state, uh, Democrats have gotten very confident over the past 10 years. Republicans have basically vacated the field. They've surrendered any hope of ever winning again. And I've always thought that that was terribly unwise. Um, and, and a big reason for that is, and I say this as somebody who, who loves Donald Trump, you know, Do- Donald Trump was a perfect candidate to lose Virginia. You could not have come and put together a more perfect Republican to be rejected by Virginia voters because of his you know, relentless attacks on the bureaucracy, the, the deep state in northern Virginia. That turns off a lot of those people. Obviously, Donald Trump turns off a lot of Democrats. But also, Donald Trump also turned off a lot of those sort of moderate, squishy Republicans who maybe don't like their politics to be quite so, uh, so much of a contact sport. That Donald that I loved about Donald Trump and Donald Trump very much embraced and so but but in the post you know with with Trump not in the White House Virginia is a very gettable place for for Republicans and I think uh, you know the challenge for Glenn Youngkin is uh, to make that campaign his campaign about concrete things concrete objectives that he wants to get done because you know there are plenty of voters there willing to reject. Terry McAuliffe and reject uh, the the insanity 
that that has come with Joe Biden. The challenge remains, though, is energizing uh, middle of the road independent voters and Republican voters, but mainly those independent voters with a real vision for what Glenn Youngkin wants. And obviously, apparently, he is uh, making great strides in that. And I think that's what we're seeing in terms of that uh, that enthusiasm for him right now. In terms of the national political environment, Charlie, Amy Walter at Cook Political Report tweets this, and it's from a Cook Politico, and it's from a Cook Political analysis, quote, more worrisome for Biden and Democrats overall is that the intensity of opposition to the president is on the rise, while strong approval has dropped. She writes, intensity mismatch like this equals turnout advantage for ours, meaning Republicans. I think that that's undeniably true at the moment. Uh, who knows what yeah. things will look like two months from now. But as I noted, there are a few different polls that I've written about and tweeted about in recent days that show in battleground states and districts, Biden is underwater in many cases now by double digits on issues yeah. and you know, general approval. I guess the question that I have for you, and it's not totally knowable yet, but if you have a very unpopular or an increasingly unpopular Democratic incumbent president, in the first year of his brand new term with Democratic control of all of Washington, D.C. and both houses of Congress, Virginia voters for like a century plus, I believe, have always elected the out party to the governorship. And they always go the opposite direction because it's this off year election, you know, the year after a presidential cycle. If the Republicans with a guy like Glenn Youngkin, who is not similar to Donald Trump, he's much more suited to the types of voters, especially in Northern Virginia, that you need to come in your direction if you're the GOP. If you've got someone like Yunkin running against a retread like Terry McAuliffe, under the circumstances that I just described, and the Republicans can't win Virginia, even you know, with history on their side and everything else lining up, I mean, would that be the death knell, at least for the time being, for Republican hope statewide in Virginia, because it seems like things should be aligning for them relatively well here. Yeah, no, I, it's going to be a dark day for Republicans in Virginia if they can't make this work because uh, because of all the reasons you just stated. Um, but but the one the, the one sort of silver lining uh, from a political tactician standpoint is you know a year ago the problem with Joe Biden is that he was a goofball, a doofus. He didn't know where he was. He said stupid things. You know, all these things that, that, that sort of uh, that, that we kind of roll our eyes about and, and laugh about. But a year ago, it was very difficult to envision how do you vilify? How could, could a Republican vilify Joe Biden? It was very difficult because he does come off as this ridiculous, avuncular, but, but generally harmless, crazy uncle that, 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 you know, you just sort of listen to. And and but but taking that a step farther into the vilification thing, that was a bridge too far. It seemed like, man, fast forward eight months and nobody had to do anything. Just letting Joe Biden be Joe Biden. He's really managed to turn his name pretty daggone toxic. And uh, and and so that's, you know, my my hunch is that that is going to wind up paying huge dividends for Republicans in Virginia uh, but also in you know across the country in, yeah, and, and in a year from in now. 22 yeah and i just want to be clear yeah. by no means am i being fatalistic or pessimistic about 
November 2nd in Virginia. I, I think that that is a winnable no, but, election. You know, but, you, but you raise, it's a really important point you raise, and, and you know, and, and this is my frustration with Republicans in the state of Virginia. They have been so quick to vacate the field in Virginia because they just think that there was, there's nothing you can do about it. But the, the, Well, and they've the been so dysfunctional was, and attacking each other and oh, horrible, purging people. It's, and, it's been a mess. But, you, but you've also had these two perfect candidates that came along. Uh, you know, one was Barack Obama, who was very uh, well suited towards sort of, uh, you know, chipping away at the edges for, for uh, you know, in Virginia. Um, and, and sort of, you know, especially, you know, when I think about that 2008 campaign, it was a very uh, positive, uplifting campaign. And, you know, the people that loved him just loved him, you know, beyond anything. And then and then you have a guy like Donald Trump, again, a, a candidate whose tenor I love because I think it's because I've spent, you know, after spending 20 years in Washington, um, however bad most people thought Washington was, I, I had to convince him it's even worse. And uh, and so so but 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 for whatever, you know, for a lot of reasons, there's that still that genteel politics. There's a strain of genteel politics that that Virginians prefer and and Donald Trump does not fit into the genteel politics. Obviously, yeah, so if it was if it was a perfect storm, if it was a perfect storm against Republicans, you know, in 08 and 12 and 16 and 20, I mean at some point it's no longer a perfect storm, it's just the way the state's moving, but if you can make right. an argument that there's a bit of a perfect storm brewing in the opposite direction, that would be happening now and we've got 2 months until we find out what happens in Virginia and I am very eager to see how it goes down because that race is entering its final stretch. Charlie Hurt, opinion editor at the Washington Times, Fox News contributor here on The Guy Benson Show. Always a pleasure, Charlie. Talk to you soon. Thanks, buddy. And the happy hour continues on The Guy Benson Show right after this. A fresh take on the biggest stories of the day. It's Guy Benson. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Wanted to mention this. You all know I'm a sports fan. I'm a Yankees fan, Major League Baseball, and boy, they have been frustrating to watch this season. Bullpen, just just brutal. Far too streaky. Who knows, maybe they'll get on a hot streak right when they need to, but it doesn't really feel like they've got what it takes to go the distance. But teams that did go the distance featured Derek Jeter for years. The captain. Derek Jeter, number two, the shortstop, five-time World Series champion, an all-star 14 times, rookie of the year when he exploded onto the scene 1996, and the Yankees won it all that year, first of five, as I mentioned, over the course of his career with the Yanks. He will finally be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, tonight. And I know that there are some haters out there who just hate the Yankees in general, who dislike Derek Jeter. I think a lot of that is just sort of envy. I think most people like and respect Derek Jeter. I mean, his farewell tour. I mean, he even got a standing ovation in Boston, right? That should say a lot. He played hard. He was classy. He represented the organization extremely well. And some of the haters saying, well, you know, look, he was a good leader and he was a big face for the Yankees and he was clutch in some ways, but did he really have a Hall of Fame career? Well, he finished his career with a batting average of 310. Not just a member of the 3,000 hit club, more than 3,400 hits 
over the course of that career. Of course, he's a no-brainer Hall of Famer in my book. And I've got his T-shirt jersey that I wear all the time. In fact, this past weekend, I wore the Derek Jeter jersey out and about. I was at a restaurant, and a waiter came up and said, you know, Derek Jeter has eaten here a few times. He got married in Napa. And I said, I also got married in Napa. So at least Derek Jeter and I have you know one thing in common. Beyond that, and the New York Yankees. Congratulations to the captain, number two, shortstop, Derek Jeter, entering the hall as he deserves to tonight after an exceptional career. Go Yankees. Tip of the cap to you, sir. When we come back, the happy hour resumes. Don't go anywhere. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today in our first hour, Mark Thiessen, who's a columnist at the Washington Post, a Fox News contributor, fellow at AEI, also a speechwriter for President George W. Bush, he joined us to talk about the situation in Afghanistan and the ongoing failures and sort of shocking comments from the Secretary of State. We got to a lot of those issues in this conversation. Here's a piece of it. Well, I want to just play for you a couple of sound bites here and get your reaction. We opened the show talking about Afghanistan and this situation that has developed now. We're in day eight of what the administration, for obvious reasons, does not want to call a hostage situation. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people at an airstrip who want to get out. There are airplanes waiting to take them out. This number includes reportedly up to 143 Americans and the Taliban for eight days, will not let any of these planes take off. For the last few days, the administration has sort of played dumb. We don't really know what's happening. We have assurances. Taliban is going to let people with proper documentation out. We're monitoring this, etc. Earlier this afternoon, the Secretary of State changed his tune a little bit and finally admitted what's obvious. The Taliban isn't allowing clearance for takeoff. Here's what he said. This is Blinken today, cut 24. As of now, the Taliban are not permitting the charter flights to depart. They claim that some of the passengers do not have the required documentation. While there are limits to what we can do without personnel on the ground, without an airport, with normal security and procedures in place, we are working to do everything in our power to support those flights and to get them off the ground. Yeah, I don't really know what that means because... Whatever's within their power is obviously not good enough, has not been good enough for eight days. Taliban holding these people effectively hostage for reasons and goals that are not clear. I speculated as to a few of them potentially. But there's another wrinkle to this, Mark, and this is a Fox News exclusive that broke earlier. Our colleague Benjamin Hall said that there's also American bureaucracy getting in the way. In addition to the Taliban saying no, there's a bureaucratic red tape holdup as well on our end. Listen to cut two. 
For days now, we have been reporting on these planes sitting on the runway in Mazar-e-Sharif in the north of Afghanistan with Americans waiting to bring them home but unable to leave. Well, now, leaked documents obtained exclusively by Fox News show that the State Department has refused to give them approval to land anywhere. In an email to retired Marine Eric Montalvo, who chartered these planes, the State Department says no charters are allowed to land at any DOD base, and most, if not all, countries in the Middle Eastern region, with the exception of perhaps Saudi Arabia, will allow charters to land. You need to find another destination country, and it can't be the U.S. either. Okay, Mark. So a few things to unpack there. Blinken's statement saying, as of now, the Taliban won't let these people leave. And then the Fox News reporting, based on emails that have been obtained by Fox, showing that the State Department is saying chartered flights aren't approved by our government to land anywhere, even if they were able to take off. And I guess the rationale is that they're worried about vetting people and they don't have any personnel on the ground to figure out who's actually getting onto the planes. Of course, they don't have people on the ground because we pulled everyone out before the evacuation was complete and we didn't start the evacuation months ago like we should have. This just seems like a, sort of a, a purgatory for these people who are stuck. And I keep getting astonished by the absolute impotence and incompetence and seemingly callousness and lack of urgency from the Biden administration on all of this stuff. It's stunning. I mean, I, every day I think it can't get worse and then it does. Uh, you know, the, the I don't know what's worse, that the Taliban is holding them hostage or not letting the planes take off or that the U.S. government is not letting the planes take off. And come to U.S. bases. I mean, it seems pretty simple to me that if you if you can confirm that there are some Americans on those flights, you let the flights land and then you secure the plane and you vet the people. Right. You know, what would we have done if we were if this is a plane in, in, in if we were at Kabul airport, we would have vetted the people at, at what was effectively a military base. That we had After the a fact, US military base with with lots of Americans around and all the rest of it. We were doing this up until uh, up until a couple of weeks ago. And, and like, what's the difference between doing that in Kabul and doing it in Doha? I just don't understand. I just don't understand the and and the idea. You know, well, we don't. It's hard to do it because we don't have personnel on the ground. Well, why the hell don't you have personnel on the ground? Because the president of the United States left these people behind. You know, that that's not an excuse. Because you, cre you created that situation. That's not just a circumstance you fell into. Right. The president of the United States told us that he would not, that he would extend the deadline and America would not pull out until we got all Americans out. And then they said that, well, they, we, got every, we, we got everyone who we think wanted to get out, but now we know there are Americans who want to get out. They first they said it was 100, you know, and now we apparently there's 143 on the tarmac in Mazar. I'm sure there are more in the country, so I don't even know how many there are. And they left. He intentionally left them behind. He ordered the last plane to leave, knowing he was leaving Americans behind enemy lines. And, and then the and then the lack of person, then the lack of boots on the ground, the lack of personnel on the ground is now being cited by the State Department as a reason in emails. It's not like this is some report where Fox has the actual emails. And it seems like Blinken has basically confirmed this as well, saying, well, you know, it's, it's we a challenge because, yeah, we don't we have a paperwork we problem. Paperwork. We don't have people on the ground. I don't understand, Mark, why we can't get 
the people with correct paperwork onto a plane and let that plane take off, or just get people onto these planes, fly them somewhere. I'm sure we can convince some government to let those planes land, and then get State Department personnel who are no longer on the ground in Kabul because of the order of the President of the United States and the violation of that promise, get them to vet people in a third country, and at least get them the hell out of Afghanistan where the Taliban is in charge. I I don't understand. It's a, from Mazar, it's a 15-minute flight to Uzbekistan. I mean, right over the border. <laughs> Country from which we, we had a military base and we're conducting military operations throughout the, the global war on terror. I mean... Send them to Uzbekistan, fly them literally across the border and vet them there. And then if they if people don't make it, take, walk, march them back to the border and send them back if they're people who we don't want to let in. I, it, it's just the lack of will, the lack of urgency. And- My full interview with Mark Thiessen available online, our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every single day. You can check it out. No charge, on demand, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, we got home late last night, having traveled across the country from California. I couldn't fall asleep right away, so I got sucked into watching a movie that I couldn't stop watching. Stayed up way too late. We'll talk about that and a few other entertainment offerings when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. It's good to be back here after a couple shows off. I've mentioned it a few times. I was off on a trip with Adam and both sets of our parents to celebrate wedding anniversary number two, which was technically yesterday, but we spent a nice long weekend in wine country out in California, and it was spectacular. We had such a wonderful time. Thanks to everyone who made that possible, and I know Christine is going to pepper me with questions tomorrow when she's back. We'll do a little Curious Christine, and we didn't want to get into all the details here without Cookie because she explicitly appealed to us to wait. So we'll wait. We can do that for tomorrow. But one of the unfortunate travel realities when you're coming back east from the West Coast is not only is it a roughly five-hour flight, You also lose three hours because of the time change. So that translates into eight hours, assuming everything is on time. So we were perfectly on time yesterday on our United flight from San Francisco back to Washington. But you take off in the early afternoon, you land, and it's full-blown nighttime. So we got in probably 9, 9.15, and we had to get an Uber, got home probably 10, Reunited with Roy, the dog, who was very happy to see us. And by 10.30, I made the decision, you know what, I really want to do a quick workout. I want to exercise because I did some walking and some running out in California. But, I mean, it was barely putting a dent into the prodigious caloric intake over the course of four days. Between the wine and the food, I mean, it was a lot. And... I was just feeling kind of gross been sitting all day, and I said, I'm going to do some exercise. So I hopped on the Peloton, did a relatively short workout, but that then energized me. So I was kind of on West Coast time, so it still felt relatively early. I was a little bit wired. I had done some of this exercise that got the blood pumping and 
I just knew I was not going to be able to get to sleep all that quickly. So I went downstairs after showering and all that, turned on the TV, and there was The Departed playing on one of the TV channels, one of the cable networks. And The Departed, I'm pretty sure, won Best Picture years ago. I saw it in the theater, and I've probably seen it twice subsequently. And it's one of those movies where once you get watching, at least for me, it is hard to stop. It's like the Shawshank Redemption. If you run across it on TV, you get sucked in. And I somehow allowed myself to get sucked in to The Departed last night. Because at the time, I wasn't that tired. But with commercial breaks and all that stuff, it's a long movie to begin with. I think it ended at like 1 or one thirty. But I sat there and I sat through the commercials and I watch it because it's really... I mean, the cast... If you have not seen this movie, I will not give any big spoilers, even though it came out years ago. The cast is pretty amazing. And it's about organized crime and the police in Boston. Set basically modern day. And there are basically double agents, spies, rats, on each side of this equation. It's an undercover agent. There are dirty cops it is gritty it is extremely violent and gosh you know it seems like who isn't in the movie All right matt damon's in there leonardo dicaprio jack nicholson of course a major character alec baldwin martin sheen mark Wahlberg. i had forgotten actually a younger anthony anderson was in the film he's looking a little trimmer these days but i mean it is an all-star cast in The Departed, and you get exactly what you're hoping for. And even though I have seen it, as I mentioned, three or four times, the elevator scene, man, I mean, that gets me every time. The first time in the theater, I think, I, I guarantee you, I gasped. And there were people, like, screaming and shouting in the theater when the elevator scene went down and just sort of the uh, the rapid-fire sequence of events over the course of 30 seconds, maybe. And if you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, the departed elevator scene, say no more. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor. Avoid all spoilers. Do not look it up on YouTube. Just watch the movie. Set aside whatever it is, two and a half or three hours. And watch it, preferably without commercial interruption. Boston accents are a little much. But what a good movie. So I was very tired and I was dragging a little bit this morning, which tends to happen right after a a vacation where you eat and drink a little too much and there's a lot of traveling. You're going to be groggy. The first day back is not necessarily A plus 10 out of 10 performance pile on top of that watching the departed till 1:30 in the morning it's it's not necessarily setting yourself up for success and yet we hope we have delivered you a superb show here on the program today now what i did not yet watch but i had recorded and it's sitting on my dvr as we speak maybe we'll get to it tonight is the new american crime story series on fx 
because I was a huge fan of the People versus O.J. Simpson. I was very late to that party, a couple of years late, I think. Everyone raved about it. I then watched it, and I, I thought I sort of knew about the O.J. case. I was very young. When I went back and I watched it, I realized, oh, my gosh, there was so much drama that I had no recollection of at all. And they brought it to life extremely well. And Sarah Paulson was fantastic. Just a great cast in that show. Then they had the, uh, the murder of Versace. That was another American Crime Story series. And the third installment now that just started and debuted last night is the Clinton impeachment. So no murder involved, unlike the previous two series in this sort of chain of long-form dramatic shows on FX, but there were crimes involved, certainly. High crimes and misdemeanors, in fact, according to the House of Representatives. And I just saw it playing briefly. And whoever they've got playing Linda Tripp, they've done a very good job with the costumes. I'm excited to watch because, again, I was pretty young when this all played out. I'm sure much of it I remember. Some of it I probably don't. And I believe I read that Monica Lewinsky herself is one of the producers of the film. So I'm very eager to see what the perspective is going to be. Who will be portrayed in a very negative light? Who will be portrayed in a more positive light? We'll see how partisan it gets. They're going to cover for Bill Clinton. I don't know. Wyatt, you mentioned this on the call today. Did you happen to watch the premiere episode last night? It was really, really good. Like you said, I, I've watched both of the other installments, the Versace and the O.J. Simpson. And this first episode, I mean, it was it was really good. Where do they pick up the story? Like, how does it begin? It begins, they do a flashback thing, which I don't I don't like when, when shows or movies do that. Like, it's, it's like at the end and then they go, you know, three, three years later. But it starts at, uh, I guess, some of the Whitewater stuff and investigations and it, it kind of starts with all that and and how Linda Tripp meets Monica Lewinsky. So Got it's it. it's it's pretty interesting. And and Linda Tripp is played by Sarah uh, Paulson. Wait, that is Sarah Paulson? Yes. Wow. Okay, they did a very good job with hair and makeup because I would not have guessed that. Although I think they put Sarah Paulson, they use her a lot in FX series like this. There's American Crime Story. There's American Horror Story. She's sort of woven through a lot of them. Sarah Paulson is Linda Tripp, huh? Well, now I'm like 100% on board. Maybe we'll watch that tonight. My interest is peaked. We can flash back to the simpler times. Circa 1998 and all that drama that played out, my goodness, more than 20 years ago. Well, producer Christine is back here tomorrow. She will ask me all sorts of questions about the trip. We will continue our coverage on Afghanistan, on Capitol Hill. seems like there's a battle brewing within Democrats on spending. We're going to keep our eye on the ball here on The Guy Benson Show with you along. We're grateful for that every single day. Check out the podcast if you missed any of today's show, GuyBensonShow.com. We'll talk to you same time, same place tomorrow for The Guy Benson Show.
Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.